This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I'm very excited to introduce a new guest on the show. Today we have Dr. Michelle Schulzberg. Uh, Dr. Schulzberg is a hematologist at St. Michael's Hospital. She's also an associate scientist at Li Ka Shing. Uh, that's a research institute affiliated with St. Mike's. And she's the medical director of the COAG lab at St. Mike's. So, you know, I am very excited to have you on the show, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I say us because usually it's John and I that are doing this show together, but I guess there's no us. Um, But for all the other episodes, it's John and I at the helm of the rounds table. So, Michelle, I wanted to get your input on... COVID-19 meets hematology, um, I never would have guessed that there'd be such interest, enthusiasm, and excitement from hematologists such as yourself. So uh, tell me more about that. Thanks, Mike. It's a great question. I would say that I probably never anticipated that I would have so much enthusiasm as a hematologist for COVID-19. So I suppose about a couple of months ago, we all as a medical community, became aware of what seemed to be an increased risk of thromboembolism amongst patients with COVID. And we also became aware of the prognostic significance of D-dimer testing. And so obviously now it seems as if, you know, five papers per day are published, whether formally or in preprint and released on Twitter, Uh, to the masses that really seems to substantiate the importance of this new entity called COVID-19 coagulopathy. Uh, Perfect. And and so, you know, you talked about D-dimer. Before COVID-19, I was sort of taught and I told my residents, you know, don't order it on our inpatients. It's a very reasonable test if the patient in front of you has a low pretest probability of a blood clot. But now all of a sudden, I find myself ordering this test. So can you help explain what exactly are we measuring when we're ordering a D-dimer and how might it be helpful? So you're absolutely right. Pre-COVID, a D-dimer was only helpful in very specific clinical scenarios. So first and foremost, to evaluate the patient with a low pretest probability of a venous thromboembolic event, meaning that if the D-dimer test was negative, then you could feel safe that um, that patient did not have a VTE. So you could rule it out, use it as a screening test. The D-dimer could also be used in certain select patient populations when you wanted to understand potentially their risk of developing a future thromboembolic event. So it can help thrombosis-focused docs determine the length of anticoagulant therapy, for example. But now all bets are off. Um, We're kind of in the Wild West where we're all learning as we go along. It's like we're all back in medical school, irrespective of when we actually graduated. And so it seems that the D-dimer in patients with COVID indicates underlying thromboinflammation. So what a D-dimer is, is it is two fibrin strands linked by factor 13. So it tells you that not only has a fibrin-rich clot formed, but it also tells you that it was stable enough to have factor 13 step in and say, stick around for more than 90 minutes. And it also tells us that the clot was broken down. Now, the tricky thing is, is that the D-dimer also can be increased just on the basis of inflammation and whether there's, in fact, a true 
clinically relevant sort of macrovascular clot present or not. So we, we make teeny tiny clots all the time and we break them down all the time. But what's a clinically significant clot is a whole other ballgame. So we don't fully understand the significance of this increased D-dimer in patients with COVID coagulopathy, but we do feel as a medical and scientific community that it likely suggests underlying thromboinflammation diffusely. Gotcha. And okay, I just learned something new that I probably should have known before. So it's quite literally just fibrin plus fibrin plus some magical factor 13. That's all D-dimer is? That's right. It's really straightforward. Okay, fair enough. I, I always just sort of had to, my eyes would glaze over when I would have to learn and relearn the various factors in the clotting uh, pathway. So I think I just have antibodies, pardon the pun, whenever I hear about factors, but that's very good to know. And then I'm seeing other blood tests being ordered, and I think it would be great if you can help us understand what they mean. So another one we're seeing is the PT or prothrombin time. Can you walk us through uh, what does that actually represent and is that helpful? For sure. Um, so the classic quote-unquote coag tests typically include the prothrombin time or the PT and the activated partial thrombopassin time, or the APTT, some people just call it a PTT. These two tests use a different set of reagents and slightly different methodology to evaluate the same outcome. So they both use different types of reagents, but time how long it takes for a clot to form, the fibrin-rich clot to form. So it's, again, really, really simple. Just put a whole bunch of stuff together, and how long does it take for the clot to form? In COVID patients, it seems as if some patients develop mild prolongation of the prothrombin time, the PT. People are probably more comfortable with the concept of the INR, which is the international normalized ratio, which is the mathematical derivative of the PT. The PT seems to be prolonged by just a couple of seconds. Whether or not this is actually clinically relevant, we don't know but it seems to indicate some underlying coagulopathy in these patients that also seems to manifest in a prothrombotic way. What's interesting is that the PTT, on the other hand, does not appear to be prolonged in patients with COVID coagulopathy. And we think that that is because these patients are so pro-inflammatory that their factor eight is through the roof. And factor eight is a really important factor in the PTT-based assay. And so because it's so high, it shortens the PTT. So even if there were minor decreases in other clotting factors, because the factor eight is through the roof, the clotting time doesn't get affected. Okay, cool. So um, let me know if I have this right so far. When we're talking about COVID coagulopathy, some of the laboratory markers we're seeing are an elevated D-dimer, an elevated PT, but for the most part, a normal APTT. Is that right so far? That's exactly right. And the D-dimer increase seems to be the most consistent manifestation. Right. And of course, when we use the term coagulopathy, we could be referring to, you know, too much bleeding or too much clotting. And in this case, the available literature suggests that this coagulopathy is tending towards clotting rather than bleeding. Is that right? That's exactly right. So coagulopathy just refers to uh, derangement of the clotting system. And yeah, from a clinical perspective, these people seem to be manifesting phenotypically as um, clotters. 
All right. And then any other laboratory markers? I mean, one I would love to get your opinion on and something we've talked a bit about before is the platelet count. I'm so used to seeing patients who are septic or have any underlying infection. I most often expect to see some thrombocytopenia. Um, what are we seeing in terms of platelet counts among individuals hospitalized with COVID-19? That's a great question. And that's one of the features of this coagulopathy that uh, sets COVID coagulopathy apart from the others. Thrombocytopenia does not appear to be a consistent manifestation, which is so unusual to hematologists, because I think that all hematologists were sort of bracing themselves for hospitalized patients admitted with a you know, uh, viral pneumonia and that we were just going to get a million consultations for thrombocytopenia, and we are not seeing that. Um, the majority of patients develop very mild, if any, thrombocytopenia, which is very unusual. Um, it's particularly unusual because in individuals who are critically ill, especially septic patients, thrombocytopenia really appears to be a consistent prognostic marker in those individuals. So this coagulopathy is really behaving very differently than others. It doesn't kind of fall in the general DIC bucket, as you say. I should probably also emphasize that while I said that these patients appear to be manifesting phenotypically with thromboembolism, it doesn't mean that we should be dogmatic about it. We're still learning so much with each passing day that I think we still have to be open to the idea that perhaps there are some patients who manifest with bleeding. Um, and I've heard anecdotally that there are some cases of intracranial hemorrhage, but really it does not seem to be a consistent finding in what has been published thus far. Okay. And now, you know, feel free to uh, disagree with this, but is there any possibility, just like how D-dimers and acute phase reactant and can be elevated with inflammation, of course, we can see that with platelets as well. Is there any possibility that there's like a tug of war here, whereas there's this inflammation that's causing maybe increased platelet count, while also the coagulopathy, you know, somewhat DIC going on that's driving down the platelet count? Is there any possibility that we could have almost like a pseudo normal platelet count? Or is that maybe too crazy of an idea? I, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And you're right. We don't really know what's underlying all this, which is one big reason why we need biomarker studies as well as biorepository studies incorporated within large prospective trials, for example, or large prospective observational studies, because we don't really know what's going on pathophysiologically. And you're right. There could be a tug of war that's happening or this could be, you know, really strongly pro-inflammatory involving certain cytokines. IL-6 has been described repeatedly and is obviously a target from a therapeutic perspective as well. But yes, I don't know the answer to that. I think that you've often, uh, like in the past, heard me talk about that a normal fibrinogen in a very sick patient is not necessarily normal. And in these patients, they seem to have hyperfibrinogenemia. But you're right, maybe their platelet count is just the end result and there's a lot more lurking beneath the surface and, and we need to understand what's happening. Cool. Okay. So um, to be determined, it sounds like. And then, of course, we've talked about DIC without actually you know, defining what we mean by DIC. So is this DIC and what is DIC? From my perspective, DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation is a constellation of uh, hematologic derangements, including an aberration in the clotting system, as well as thrombocytopenia. 
there are clinical scoring tools that can help clinicians determine the likelihood of underlying DIC. And that incorporates elements like the platelet count, like uh, the PT or INR, like fibrinogen. But the truth is that DIC is sort of like a catch-all term and doesn't necessarily capture the nuance of each underlying driving severe illness. So DIC is a big umbrella term. I don't like using the term DIC when describing COVID coagulopathy because it does appear to manifest very distinctly from the other more classic forms of DIC seen in patients with bacterial sepsis, for example. But it's it's basically a catch-all term. Okay, that is uh, very good to know. So we've talked about a lot of the abnormal laboratory tests that we can see among some individuals with COVID-19. Um, what have you seen in the literature thus far in terms of clotting? Is this venous? Is it arterial? Is it both? Uh, what do we know so far? Thus far, what we know is that it seems as if up to a quarter of patients who are critically ill uh, develop thromboembolic events, the majority of which are venous and nature, and the majority of those are in fact pulmonary emboli. There have been reports of arterial events, and I think you tweeted earlier today about a case series that was published in the New England describing five patients, I think it was, under the age of 50 who had stroke. So there does seem to be an increased susceptibility to arterial events as well. There also have been described cases of microvascular thromboses and some autopsy studies that describe microvascular thrombosis of the pulmonary vasculature. So there really does seem to be a very unusual, strong prothrombotic drive. Uh, and many have hypothesized that von Willebrand factor, factor eight, maybe even Adam TS-13 are somehow implicated, again, emphasizing the need for us to gather samples on these patients at multiple time points to investigate what's actually happening. Okay. And I guess, you know, the big question is, how do we prevent these events from occurring? And it seems like the time uh, is is ripe for a pragmatic trial. And I think the trial that, you know, you're leading is going to have such an important impact on how we manage and how we care for patients with COVID-19. I can already see the, the studies publication in New England Journal of Medicine. So um, tell us about this uh, terrific trial that you have launching in, in the coming days. Well, thanks so much, Mike. So the inspiration for this trial uh, now came what feels like many moons ago, but is probably nearly two months ago only, when it became clear to many of us that these patients are presenting with thromboembolism and that the D-dimer seems to be prognostic. And when it became abundantly clear that the pandemic was going to be coming straight to Canada, as well as the United States and other parts of the Western world, myself and, and many others, including my co-PIs, Mary Cushman from the University of Vermont and Peter Uni from Toronto, who's the director of ARC, um, decided to uh, combine our efforts to develop a very pragmatic trial that could answer this important question, but very quickly. And so our trial is called the RAPID COVID COAG trial. We're now calling it RAPID. And uh, really, we want to know if therapeutic heparin-based anticoagulation compared to prophylactic doses of heparins influence the outcome of these patients. And the primary outcome is a composite outcome that looks at the need for ICU admission, need for ventilation or death 
at 28 days. And we're also interested, obviously, in bleeding and clotting, as those are also really important outcomes. And so you're right that we critically need the answer to this now. The heparins uh, appear to be an attractive therapeutic agent because there are multiple mechanisms that might be implicated here. So obviously as an anticoagulant, naturally. And in addition, it's uh, non-specific binding to multiple additional players that might be involved, including BWF. It's uh, anti-inflammatory properties. It's already been shown to reduce IL-6 in patients with COVID. In addition to its ability to modulate vascular endothelium and also potentially interfere with viral attachment and potentially invasion of cells. So it's really interesting. Everything that's old is new again, including the heparins. And this trial is very pragmatically defined with a very simple and lean approach, really being very sensitive to COVID-related considerations in hospitals so that we do not overburden the clinical team so that we do not add additional burden to the patient. We feel that this is so important because with each, like in addition to the obvious clinical question that appears important, but with each passing day, we're losing equipoise because uh, very understandably, uh, frontline clinicians are faced with a lot of adversity related to COVID and are relying on expert opinion that is just that expert opinion, not based on any prospective evidence, and are providing intermediate or even therapeutic doses of anticoagulation before we know if A, it's effective, and B, if it's safe. So that's that's our trial. Terrific. So um, in a nutshell, you let me know if I have this right. Um, it's randomizing uh, people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 if they have an elevated D-dimer more than two times the upper limit of normal to either a DVT prophylaxis dose or full dose anticoagulation with a heparin-based product. Is that right so far? That's exactly right. So this is a study of the pre-ICU patient population with the goal of initiating heparin early to potentially decrease the risk of the downstream thromboinflammatory effects. And I should also say that there's Yet another potential um, element to support the biological plausibility of heparin is that there are numerous previous animal studies of acute Mm. lung injury that show that heparin not only has its anticoagulant effect, but also that it can help with the reversal of acute lung injury. So Mm. obviously that's of interest uh, since uh, COVID is manifesting predominantly as ARDS. Terrific. All right. That, uh, that's very exciting. And then, you know, for our listeners, let's say they want to get their hospital involved. Are you accepting more hospitals to come on board and how can they do that? Thanks, Mike. Um, so yes, we certainly are interested in additional hospital sites. We have numerous Canadian sites and American sites and also are going to be moving into parts of Europe. I want to give a shout out to um, some of the sites who, in fact, believe so strongly in our trial that they have indicated that before there's any flow of funding from our coordinating site to theirs, that they would like to begin recruitment immediately, which I think speaks to the silver lining of COVID and uh, the fact that we as a medical and scientific community have banded together to answer this important question. So we will be randomizing um, our first round of patients over the next couple of weeks at seven Canadian sites in rapid succession. And we are really well positioned to recruit our very first patient at St. Mike's in the next few days. 
All right, this is amazing, Michelle. It's um, terrific to hear about your trial and, and all of the pearls that you've provided us, us with today. So let's go over a few of them. I will do my best to sort of reiterate and remember what was said, and you give me a, a true or false. So um, a true or false um, COVID coagulopathy seems to present with clotting rather than bleeding. As far as we know, true. All right. Um, a tempered true. And among individuals who have COVID coagulopathy, mainly venous thromboembolism, in particular pulmonary emboli, uh, but we're also seeing some people with arterial events. True. And in terms of laboratory markers that are characterizing COVID coagulopathy, we're seeing an elevated D-dimer, as well as a mildly elevated PT, prothrombin time, but typically normal platelet count, fibrinogen, and APTT. True. All right. And you are more than happy for more hospitals to come on board with the rapid COVID coag study. Still true? True. All right. Terrific. So, Michelle, the most important question then, how can we reach out to you? How can listeners contact you if they want to get their hospital involved with rapid COVID coag? Um, so I'm active on Twitter. Um, so people can find me at, uh, at Schulzberg, S-H-O-L-Z-B-E-R-G. Or uh, people can feel free to email me directly. It's michelle.scholzberg at unityhealth.to. Great. And uh, we will make sure that that contact information is also on our website. Well, Michelle, it's been terrific to chat with you. Before I let you go, anything else that we've missed or, or haven't covered that you wanted to bring up? I don't think so. I think that um, your your synopses, as usual, are outstanding. And thanks so much for the opportunity, Mike. No problem at all. Happy to help. All right. Well, then uh, with that, thank you again for, for your time, Michelle. Terrific to have you on the show. Terrific to hear about your study. And maybe we can have you back in a, a few weeks to hear how progress is going and whatever we can do to help. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'd be happy to. Perfect. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.